Welcome to the latest episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman, here with you. And it has been a great, great week. We have some really, really cool stuff to share with you. First of all, in case you hadn't heard, I am now contributing to a new site that was started called Playmaker Mentality, playmakermentality.com, at playmentality on Twitter. It is a site that was started by some members of Draft Twitter who wanted to expand beyond the horizons of just talking about draft. They wanted to talk about sports in a smarter way, but also focus on society, culture in general. I am going to be a contributing culture writer there. I might also dabble into the draft as well. And I'm really, really excited for the opportunity. And this podcast will be hosted there. And you can listen to every episode as they go live on Playmaker Mentality. I have some cool ideas that are kicking around for that. So I'll keep you posted there. Second of all, and potentially even cooler, this podcast is finally on iTunes. It took a long time. I didn't even know it was on iTunes until somebody told me it was on iTunes. But it is on iTunes under the Hammer Time Podcast. Please download it. Please leave reviews. Please leave stars. I want a lot of stars. If you want to give me five stars, but you feel like there's something I can do better that would elevate this podcast to a five-star level, please let me know, and I will do my best. I've gotten some great feedback thus far. People really seem to be enjoying this, and I hope to keep it up, but I can only do that if you give me feedback. So I'd really appreciate anything you can do there, and of course, share this with your friends spread this around, but yes, we are on iTunes, that's really cool. So this week, as we do every week, we'll be talking about sports, society, and stuff, and my guest this week is somebody who I actually just saw last week because he's visiting New York and the East Coast from where he currently lives, which we will reveal in the society portion of this podcast, uh, the head in charge of Pat's Pulpit, Rich Hill is here. Rich, how are you today? Well, Ethan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It is great to see you again. We hadn't seen each other for a while until we saw each other this week. I feel like the last time we saw each other was at the 2013 draft or 2014. Not that long ago? I think it was. Uh, I don't even remember who was being drafted, but I do remember that we got front row seats and we got to go by Ian Rappaport. I'm excited to see Ian again in Mobile. He will be there. I saw him last time we were there, and I'm looking forward to seeing him again. We saw Doug Kide, too, our friend. We yeah. actually met, well... You know, backing up a second, why don't we talk about the first time we met? Because it was kind of trippy, thinking about it in hindsight. Yeah, who organized that? I think it was Aaron Aloysius. Yeah, so basically what happened was there was, I don't know, seven of us that were all in the Boston area. Uh, I was currently a junior, I think, at Boston College. It was the 2011 draft. I know that for certain. And I was there, Aaron Aloysius, who is the founder and creator of the DraftBreakdown.com website, where they host all of those fantastic videos of draft prospects. He was there. He was attending Harvard, I believe. He was a senior at that point, or maybe he was a recent graduate. Uh, Then there was also Doug Tide, who, was he still at Emerson? I think he had graduated at that point. He He did not write for Nesson yet. That's all I know. I think he was still doing any Patriots draft at that point. Yeah, and so there you were there, uh, Jinx was there? Allegedly, uh, Jinx was either there or not there. I don't remember. I don't know. I've either. heard it claimed that he was there, but I do not remember him being there. Yeah, and then uh, Brian Fontaine uh, was there. Uh, he was 
a big part of the pro football focus fantasy draft uh, starting up. And then I believe he started his site called Rookie Watch. Uh, who else was there? That might have been it. I feel like it might have been like one of Aaron's random friends was there. <laughs> but I remember I, we were at some bar. We were at Pizzeria Uno in uh, Cambridge. Yes. Yes, and so we went, went to, like, the basement because that is where they had enough TVs for us to sit. And it was, like, a random time of day, too, because no one else was there in the basement with us, right? No one was there. It was totally empty except for these <laughs> random guys who were just watching the draft in yeah. the middle of a Sunday. Yeah, it wasn't even the good part of the draft, though, because we were watching at least the fourth round. I think this might have been the first year they had changed it or something like that because I remember we were sitting there – and we watched the Patriots select Marcus Cannon. And I believe he was the fifth-round pick in 2011, so maybe they hadn't changed it yet. But uh, I distinctly remember that happening and being thrilled that he was available for them to take. And I remember them picking Lee Smith, and all of us were like, who the heck is Lee Smith, <laughs> the tight end from Marshall? Yeah, that was definitely a fun time, though. And everyone's really done great since then. I mean, Doug's done awesome. If you don't follow Doug on Twitter... He is a great source of Patriots content and NFL content at Doug Kide. Anyway, moving on, we're all Patriots fans. We're going to talk about all the teams tonight, but we're going to focus on the Patriots because I think that you and I can get a little bit more in-depth. So what were your thoughts on how they ended the year? It was a little bit tough for them. Yeah, it was definitely very, very rough. There wasn't anything that went right for them. Let's be quite honest. Uh, They were feeling all the injuries that were happening. The offensive line just is not good. I I don't know whether we were witnessing Trey Jackson and Shaq Mason hitting a rookie wall, but for whatever reason, they just stopped progressing. Josh Klein is their other guard. He took a major step back. Marcus Cannon took a step back. Sebastian Vollmer got hurt. So pretty much every single player on that offensive side of the ball was hurt at some point in time over that final stretch. And it ended with Tom Brady getting an ankle injury in the final week of the season. So, you know, that was just a a perfect cherry on top of that finale. But I I think that we saw the Patriots stumble on the offensive side of the ball. We, We witnessed how important Donta Hightower is for the Patriots at linebacker. There were just too many injuries for this team to overcome, and it was just so obvious uh, when they were playing the Dolphins in that final week of the year. They just wanted to run down the clock and just say, please take us to the playoffs. We can't afford anyone else to get hurt. And honestly, if that's the case, though, why is Brady playing? I'm sorry. He should not have been playing in that final game of the year. It should have been Jimmy, even though I know Brady is a very proud person and doesn't want to ever surrender any snaps. This is for the betterment of the team. He needs to get out of the game. Oh, I agree, I agree. And there was some like post-game chatter where like Nate Ebner, the, the Patriots special teamer, was telling some players on the Dolphins that the Patriots' goal to start the game was, we're not going to pass the ball until we run for two first downs. And that didn't happen until the mid-second quarter. So, I mean, it, I agree with you. I think that the Patriots' goal for the first half of the game was to learn how to run the ball, learn how to drain the clock, and then they wanted to have a shorter game. They wanted to be able to win over the final two quarters. But if that were the case, I mean, you don't want to disrupt Tom Brady's starting streak, so put him out there for the first drive, let him hand off, let Garoppolo finish that first half. There was no need for Brady to be out there just handing the ball off. It was just really a disaster anyways, and it was just asking for an injury to happen. And You don't like seeing that, but I understand that in the second half, 
they they changed everything. They started slinging the ball. They really were trying to win, and they just didn't have the manpower to do it. I will say that they are well-positioned, at least to me, to be able to make a run in the playoffs if things break right. They're getting all their weapons back. I think Julian Edelman, it's been very clear that he was a massive part of this offense. Gronk's going to be running his full complement of roots again. Danny Amendola's going to be back. Brandon LaFell has not had a good year, but I think between him and Keyshawn Martin, they can manufacture something together. And quietly, James White has been phenomenal over the past few weeks. He has taken Deion Lewis's role for the time being. Now, granted, all things equal, I think Lewis might be better, but White can totally replicate what Lewis did for that offense. I just hope they let him run the ball more. Lewis had a little bit of that run changeup, and White really has not handled the ball on the ground at all. He's pretty much just been used in the passing game. Steven Jackson also looked pretty fresh, so I think in terms of the skill position players, the Patriots are okay, but I'm still really, really nervous about that offensive line. Even before he got hurt, Sebastian Vollmer was having a bad year. He is not the same player that he was when he was a younger guy, and I mean, Adrian Waddle was awful for the Lions, but with the I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. With Gouge as the coach. Really, I'm not trying it. But with him <laughs> as the coach, isn't it more important to build up continuity? And I think that Waddle could do a serviceable job if necessary. I think Stork could do a serviceable job if necessary. He looked decent. But we're facing Justin Houston and Tom Bahali this week, and that is scary to me. The ball is going to be going out so quick. It's going to be interesting to see how they game plan for this team, although I actually think in some ways it'll be predictable. They're going to challenge the linebackers. They're going to go after the slot cornerback, whomever is on Edelman, and they're going to force them to execute perfectly. And if the Chiefs can do that, they'll win the game, I think. I think that they might be a little bit better than the Patriots at this point in the season. But if the Patriots are able to overcome them, then... I think that they match up pretty well with Denver, and they should be in good shape the rest of the playoffs. Well, okay, I'm just going to jump in there. When you said Steven Jackson looked fresh, my first thought was, yeah, he does look good with that new haircut. He, he does look pretty fresh. And then I realized you weren't talking about his appearance whatsoever. Um, but also, yeah, just kind of build off of that. Brandon LaFell is, has not had a great year, as you said. He also has not really been able to play alongside Edelman because, I mean, LaFell came back, I think it was week seven was the Jets game. And then he had like two weeks where they were both involved in the offense. And then all of a sudden Edelman breaks his foot. And then all of a sudden Amendola hurts his knee. And then all of a sudden Rob Gronkowski hurts his knee. So you have LaFell out there who all of a sudden ascends from being the third or fourth option in this offense to being the guy. And he is not the guy. I mean, that's what everyone knew while he was with Carolina. He was forced into a position where he just wasn't able to win. And that's just, it's not really his fault so much as just part of his limitation. And it's just an understanding with how he plays. And I, I think moving forward with all of these other players, he should undeniably be better or at least more productive because he won't have to be playing against the Darrell Revises. He, he won't have to be playing against these top-tier cornerbacks because they'll be busy with other players. And Brady still has tried to get him active in the game. He's tried some deep balls pretty much every week, and it seems like they're almost there, but LaFell does not extend himself to go for them. I'm still not 100% sure that LaFell's totally healthy. 
I think he's been nursing a foot injury for much of the season. But moving on to the Chiefs, which players in their defense do you think the Patriots are going to be keying in on in terms of exploiting and also keying in on in terms of avoiding? Well, I'd actually be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, the Jeff Howe quote, so that, that Boston Herald's beat writer Jeff Howe was saying that he was watching the Chiefs' defense and he saw Marcus Peters being a vulnerable part of this secondary. And Peters was tied for the league league with interceptions and stuff like that. But most people watch him play and say he, he kind of just takes advantage of Peyton Manning, let's be quite honest. He, he was taking advantage of Ducks. He, he has a nose for the ball, but he is not as able to handle the, I should, how do we want to call it, like the, the lateral motions of the wide receivers. So how proposed the idea that Edelman, with his shiftiness, his ability to go in and out of cuts, that he will have a lot of success against Peters, and that will help the Patriots move the ball down the field. And I don't know if you've watched Peters enough. Did you agree or disagree with that? Well, something important that I've seen when I've been watching the Chiefs, they don't shift sides a lot. I don't think that Peters is going to see that much Edelman. I think that the Chiefs are going to leave him on LaFell or even on Gronk because I think that they're going to end up doubling Gronk for a lot of the game. And it makes sense to have a robber like Peters play under because Brady likes to throw so much back shoulder or those vertical in routes. I don't think that Peters is going to be playing a lot of Edelman. I think that they'll use other guys to try and face Edelman. And that is a weakness of theirs. I'm not sure they have a shifty slot guy who can play him, because Sean Smith's another bigger cornerback. So that will be a weakness of theirs for sure. I'm just really scared about that pass rush, because with Don Terry Poe, Alan Bailey, you have Justin Houston, Tom Bahali, that's what killed them in their first meeting when the Chiefs beat them last year 41-14. to They could yeah. not stop the pass rush. And with this offensive line, now granted, I think that they're better than in that game, I'm just not sure. This is the team I did not want to face, because... I think that they could have handled Pittsburgh, especially a weaker Pittsburgh team, not that they would have faced them. And then Cincinnati and Houston are both teams that are pretty mediocre. But Kansas City, to me, has the right pieces to be able to beat the Patriots because they have a really strong defense and a quarterback who doesn't turn the ball over. And I definitely am a little bit nervous of Alex Smith. Not that he'll make any big plays, but that he will take the checkdowns that the Patriots are sure to offer them. And the Patriots had issues tackling checkdowns recently. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just looking at that offensive line of the Patriots, which I think I agree with you, that'll be the, the biggest key to the game. If you compare them this season to what they were putting on the field back in week four of 2014, uh, they've moved from Nate Solder uh, in 2014 to Sebastian Vollmer. They've moved from Dan Connolly at left guard to... We don't even know. It's probably going to be Josh Klein, but it could very well be Shaq Mason. But Klein has been getting more snaps. Uh, then at center, it was Brian Stork then in his very, very first start. And then it's Brian Stork now. So that's our only real consistency that we're, we're seeing. And then at right guard, they had Cameron Fleming back in 2014. And then now we have Trey Jackson, who has actually passed Shaq Mason with regards to his snaps on the field due to his he, – he's able to – pass block a little bit better than Shaq. So they, they prefer his consistency across both facets of the, the offensive game. And then at right tackle, uh, or actually, I believe, yeah, so at right tackle last year, they had Vollmer, and then this year they have Marcus Cannon. So it's pretty much different across the board, other than they're moving from a rookie to a slightly more experienced Brian Stork at center. But I agree, this is going to be a huge mess for the Patriots and their protection. You, know, you really have to hope that the Chiefs aren't 
able to capitalize on that. And the, the Patriots will have to just sling the ball as quickly as possible to, to try and negate that pass rush. You know they will. And luckily with Edelman back, they should be in better shape to do that. Now, we would be remiss if we didn't discuss some news that happened very, very recently. Chandler Jones admitted to the hospital. As Lou Merloni said, his source had noted that Jones was not wearing a shirt or shoes when he was admitted to the hospital. And now it sounds like he was smoking spice, synthetic marijuana, according to Christopher Gasper of the Boston Globe. First of all, have you heard anything else regarding this case? And second of all, what do you think the ramifications are going to be on this game, if any? I mean, he was back at practice. Spice is not banned by the NFL somehow, although I'm guessing this offseason that might change. Uh, Do you think there are going to be any ramifications? NFL's hands are actually pretty tied, and I only think this because everything that happened over this offseason with regards to Tom Brady and Deflategate, where we learned that the NFL has these specific policies that they have to enforce, and one thing that always came up was that drug policy and the fact that the NFL has established these are the exact proceedings we have, these are our rules, and first violators will have X, Y, and Z happen to them, second violators will be escalated, third violators will be banned for a year sort of thing, and they can't go past that. And looking at that specific policy, NFL players can only be tested for specifically marijuana, amongst other things, but they cannot be tested for the synthetic drugs or the synthetic marijuana that Chandler Jones had. And as a result of that, they're not able to really dock him for that. But what they're able to do is send him into an intervention program that will essentially say that you are now a part of the system. You, you are now part of this drug program because you were hospitalized. That is enough for us to put you in there. Whether or not you violated whatever was listed here, that's not the issue, but you are now within the program. And because this is, as far as we are aware, this is Chandler Jones' first violation, his first time entering the program, the league that can't really do anything. It's more of a warning and it's trying to get him cleaned up. And then as if he violates further down the road, that's when the fines and the suspensions come into play. That sounds pretty reasonable. I mean, I think the league will need to address it a little bit more holistically in the future because Spice is a thing now that is being used by a lot of college players as well as pro players. We recently had the issue with Denzel Kemdiche, who was using Spice when he ended up in a coma. That's been confirmed by multiple people who I've talked to, and I think members of the media as well. I think it's pretty common knowledge. So... It is something that will need to be addressed by the league. I'll be interested to see if it is addressed this year, but otherwise it's just something that will have to stay on their radar. So now there are three other games this week, the Steelers-Broncos, the Panthers-Seahawks, and the Packers and Cardinals. What do you think is going to be the results of those games as well as the Patriots game? Let's just make all our picks. Yeah, sure. So do you want to go game by game or do you want to just go all four? Let's do... Game by game. And I guess we'll start with the Patriots. We already talked about it. I'm going to go Patriots. I think it's going to be close. I think the Chiefs could definitely win. I have nothing but respect for the team. And I've said it before. If the Patriots lose this game, I'm rooting for the Chiefs to make the Super Bowl against whomever they face. But I do think that Brady's going to find a way to eat up the middle of that defense. And I expect the Patriots' defense to make a big play. I think that with Hightower back, with everyone healthy, 
Chandler Jones is going to have something to prove. Jamie Collins has been dynamic all season long. I think that they're going to end up making a touchdown or creating a key turnover. That's going to change the game. And the other thing is I think with Macklin injured, that really does hurt the Chiefs. Although, if you want to know a random player who could destroy the Patriots this week, Albert Wilson, their receiver too, who is going to be elevated into more Macklin's role, is really good. And he's one guy who I'm very scared of this week. But I think the Patriots are going to win, and I'm going to give it to them by three. I'm going to say the final score is 23-20. to 20. That's interesting, because I agree. I think that this game will be decided based off of how these injured players are able to perform. And so, with the Chiefs, they need Jeremy Macklin out there. Personally, I don't think the Chiefs have a chance if Macklin is anything less than like 80% out there. He's just too important, and I know that you're, you're high on Albert Wilson, and it's very possible that he could produce in a greater role. But you, you look at who has seen opportunities in that offense, and if Macklin's out there, Travis Kelsey is at tight end. He's fantastic, but Wilson doesn't even have 500 yards on the year. And I, I think that there is some degree of trust that's necessary when it comes time for the playoffs in these big moments. And Wilson has showed up big against the Chargers twice this year, but he really hasn't done much besides that. And so I, I think that if he's thrust into a big spot, the Patriots will put Malcolm Butler on him. I, I don't see... Wilson having an Antonio Brown-type game where he's able to fully take over. But I, I think that if Macklin's unable to play, the, the Chiefs will be really in a hard place to put up points. And I think it was WEI's Ryan Hannibal that found the stat that Alex Smith's teams are 3-50 and 50 or something like that when they can't put – or when they fail to score 23 points or something like that. And you so, mean when the opponent scores 23 points? Is that, was that the stat? Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, so I, I think that they're going to kind of have to put up points of their own, and I don't think they're in a good position to do that. Uh, and then on the other side, I think that the Patriots need to trust that Edelman's healthy. I mean, it's dangerous coming back with that foot injury. I know that they're putting in extra precautions, but who knows how rusty he'll be? Who knows if he'll be ready to go? Pretty much every single other person on that offense is injured. And so if the sum of the injuries is greater than, than what they're able to overcome, then I could see the Patriots offense struggling as well. But I think ultimately the Patriots have enough to make it happen. But I agree with you that it'll be a low-scoring game. I think it'll be lower than people expect due to all these injuries and people struggling. So I'm, I'm expecting a Patriots victory of like a 17-14 to 14 margin, 17-15, something like that. The Steelers against the Broncos. Peyton Manning is back. He's going to be starting. Ben Roethlisberger is a little bit banged up. Who do you think is going to win this game? Well, I think it's kind of funny because just like three weeks ago, everyone was talking about, oh, the Steelers, they're the hot team. They're the team that no one wants to face. And now it's kind of become the, the, the Chiefs at this point in time. But this is kind of points back to the, the Patriots not getting home field advantage. I mean, how excited would they be to, to face a potentially Antonio Brown and Roethlisberger-less Steelers team? But I, I think that the Broncos, they don't need Peyton to do anything special here. The, the Steelers' defense is not great. Uh, they have a talented offense if Brown is there. Uh, D'Angelo Williams is battling an injury, too. And, I mean, Martavis Bryant is fantastic. Marcus Wheaton has really grown over the second half of the season. But I, if it's Landry Jones out there, if it's 50% of Ben Roethlisberger, he's torn ligaments in his shoulder, I don't see them having much success against this Broncos defense. So, honestly, if, I think if the Broncos are able to hit 15 points, I don't, I don't see the Steelers 
with the caveat that if Roethlisberger and Brown are, are not playing or are very hurt, then I don't think the Steelers are able to break that with Landry Jones. It sounds like Roethlisberger is going to play and Brown is doubtful at this point, although who knows what happens. Concussions can sometimes be swept under the rug for better or for worse. I was watching the game where Peyton came in, and what struck me is he made every correct audible against the Chargers. He knew what that defense was doing every single time they stepped on the field and would just option to a run, pretty much. I made a couple of nice throws, but he really did not do that much in that game other than just beat Peyton Manning and be really smart. I do agree with you, though. I think it might be a little bit too much for the Broncos to overcome. I do think that if the Steelers were fully healthy, I would have picked them. Oh, yeah. They're good enough to win, and they are a really talented team. But that defense is still really good, and I think Peyton is going to be able to get his against that Steelers D. Although, to their credit, they've been better this year than a lot of people expect. I was surprised at how good they've been against the run. Cameron Hayward is good. I'm still a little bit skeptical on Stefan to it, but he's been playing pretty well this year. Ryan Shazier had a coming-out party of sorts against the Bengals. They're going to be a tough team to run on. And I think that they're going to force Peyton to throw it, but I think Peyton makes the throws necessary. 17-13 is my pick there. Oh, that's a close one. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the Steelers are going to kind of be limited as well. I mean, I hard to differ with that score projection, but I think like it'll be 18-15 sort of battle of the field goals. Your scores are weird. I will say that I think Peyton throws two interceptions. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the I ugliest think, passes you've ever seen, but he's still going to get so much credit for the win. I think Peyton's going to throw some picks, and I think the Steelers are going to have trouble moving the ball because that is a legitimate Denver defense. They're really, really good. NFC time. Packers-Cardinals. What do you think? I think that the Cardinals are going to win. I, I was actually surprised that the Packers were able to move so well against this Washington team. Uh, I don't think that Washington was good by any means. I think it was... My opinion is more an indictment on the Packers than anything, but they seem to kind of figure out what they were doing. Rodgers did well. I, I don't think that any player really excelled or exceeded expectations, but when you look at how the players performed on the Packers, both running backs had like roughly 60 yards and a touchdown. They spread the ball in the passing game, and that was really what was missing out of this team is just some sort of offensive consistency. But... On the other hand, these are the Cardinals. I think that Arizona is just going to come out flying, absolutely stomp them. I, I think that Bruce Arians is going to have these guys ready to roll. I, I think that Carson Palmer, I mean, the, the Cardinals have been extremely fortunate with the health of their players. And I, I think that it's going to really show here due to every sort of consistency that they've gotten. And I, I think that the Cardinals are going to pull away with a win here like, with a score of like 34 to, to 20. As Justice Mosqueda likes to say, the Packers do not want you to run the ball on them. And that's something that the Cardinals are really well well equipped to do with David Johnson. So I agree with you. I think they're going to win going away. Final game, Carolina-Seattle. This is a close one. I'm going to still go Carolina. I know that Seattle's a pretty in-vogue pick right now. But Cam is the best quarterback in the league to me at this point in time. I think Brady could get back up there once he's fully healthy, but what Cam has done all year is just phenomenal to me. That defense is really, really good, and Russell Wilson, 
other than one crazy improvisational play, he did not play that well against the Vikings. And I think Carolina's defense is a little bit better. Plus, Carolina's going to be at home, of course. It's another 10 a.m. game for the Seahawks. I know some of their fans are complaining about that, but that's just how the cookie crumbles, I guess. Really? Okay. I mean, that's a, that's interesting. I think that the Seahawks, they were definitely affected by the cold, in my opinion. They were very, very fortunate with that missed field goal at the end, but also it really took the air out of the ball. I mean, they, they, no one was able to throw. Neither quarterback passed 150 yards through the air. It just wasn't a thing that was going to happen. And I think that you look at what will happen in Carolina, I think that they'll be able to pass it more. I mean, they won't be able to pass it with more success. So I'll definitely throw that out there. I mean, Josh Norman is one of the top two or three corners in the entire league at this point in time. Luke Keekley and Thomas Davis are one of the top linebacker duos. They have a great pass rush. They have some two stalwart defensive tackles in the middle. But I, I agree. I think that the Panthers, I don't think that they're making the Super Bowl. I think that they at least survived this first round. And I, I think that they'll be able to win. I don't know if it'll be a blowout. I kind of still trust the Seahawks defense. But this will be a hard-fought game with the, the Panthers ultimately winning 24-21. Sounds like an entertaining matchup, an entertaining list of quarterfinal games. We have the same exact picks, all the favorites. Maybe there's some deviation, but no one thought all the row teams were going to win last week, and they did, so I don't really know. Final sports topic, Super Bowl prediction, who you got, go. All right, so my thought is if I'm picking the Patriots this week, I'm definitely picking them against whichever team comes out of the Broncos-Steelers game. I think that the Patriots will only be better next week, better than they are this week. And I I think that that'll truly help them moving forward. And they're my decision out of the AFC. I mean, that's totally a homer pick, but looking across it, if they can come past and beat the Chiefs, I don't see any of the either two teams winning. Uh, Looking at the NFC, I definitely think that the Cardinals are the strongest team. And I, I think that we'll see a Patriots-Cardinals Super Bowl. Uh, it's the only one that is not a rematch for the Patriots. Uh, they've already played the Packers, uh, Seahawks, and Panthers before. Uh, I think that the Cardinals do have enough firepower to ultimately win in that Super Bowl game. Well, we're going to differ in some ways, but we're going to be the same in others. I also have the Patriots making the Super Bowl, and I think that they're going to play the Panthers in a rematch. I just think that the Panthers are really, really well-equipped to beat the Cardinals. They have great cornerbacks. Really good quarterback. They can stop the run. They can pressure Palmer. And I'm still not 100% sold on the offensive line of the Cardinals. I think that Carolina could pressure a little bit and create some chaos there. And on the other side, I agree with you. People forget the Patriots should have won that first Broncos game, except for a really bad fumbled punt of someone who's no longer on the team and some other bad decisions later, the Gronk injury, of course. I think that the Patriots will beat the Broncos. I think that the Broncos are going to play them really tough. It is not going to be a pretty game. I am terrified that someone else is going to get hurt in that game because, you know, they play really hard, and TJ Ward is definitely there. But I agree with you. I think the Panthers are going to win the Super Bowl. They play the Patriots. I don't think that either NFC team that we've talked about is a good matchup for New England because they're going to have trouble with the – offensive weapons that they have. They've had trouble with Cam in the past, and the Cardinals have so many offensive weapons. And on defense, I think both of them can neutralize, to an extent, the Patriots' offensive weapons. I think the Patriots actually have a better chance against the Cardinals than against the Panthers, if I'm being completely honest. But either way, I would be very pleasantly surprised if they beat either team. 
So oh, I see. definitely agree. I, I think that the Patriots, they're, they're good enough to get out of the AFC, but they're just way too banged up. I, I think that if we had the full contingent of Patriots, if Deion Lewis was still there, Nate Solder was still there, if pretty much everyone, if Dominique Easley was still there, I, I think that the Patriots have a much better chance. Uh, I think that right now the offensive line is not good enough to beat any of those strong defensive fronts in the, the NFC, specifically because I think that the Broncos, they rely a lot on bringing like five players down. And so I, I think that they'll be able to man up and win every single time. But I, I think that the Panthers and the Cardinals are able to win in other ways. They, they use a lot of confusion, I would say, specifically with Bruce Arians. They, they like to blitz some of their defensive backs. And I don't think that the Patriots' offensive line is good enough right now. They don't have the experience to handle that type of rush. Agree. Well, it's on Gouge. If Gouge does his thing, then maybe the Patriots surprise both of us. So we're going to move to the society portion of the podcast now. And I mentioned earlier that you were visiting from Egypt, where you have been living for a little while. First of all, why don't you tell us what brought you to Egypt? And second of all, what's it like living there? Yeah, so when I graduated college, I had a finance degree. I did the investment bank thing. I I worked at Citigroup for about three years and went right out of college there and did sales and trading, levered finance. And there was a point where I was just not excited anymore. And I, I think that for me, I, I had been dating someone for, I mean, since freshman year. We're actually now engaged. Uh, but at that point in time, after I hit three years at, at the company, she had graduated with her master's. And she had started working at, as a consultant in a human security firm out in Egypt. And for me, I I started interviewing with other banks in Egypt to try and ask like, Hey, like see, just float the idea by, see if, see if I could make it work. And I had one interview and they asked me, why would you want to come to Egypt? And I had no good answer as to why I would want to be doing banking while in Egypt. And I would also like to highlight that the currency change, that they would pay you based off of an Egyptian salary. And for those of you who are unaware, investment bankers typically work like an average of 100 hours a week or something like that. And the average salary over there was roughly like 1000 USD a month. Wasn't great. Not worth my time. And so I was like, I'm just not happy doing that. I had been working for SB Nation for, I guess, since my sophomore year of college, at sort of a part-time deal. And then finally I was like, hey, if you guys are willing to, to pay up, and I'd much prefer to do this as a full-time writer. I, I will do this uh, in freelance capacity. Pay me. I'll do it. I'll do it. And that's ultimately how it worked, where I was able to transition away from working in finance into sports writing. as kind of just more like I, I needed a change. I needed a kick in the butt, and this definitely made it possible. Well, first of all, congratulations on the engagements. I know that was very recent. Thank you. That's very exciting. So just building on that, though, you said that the exchange rate is definitely very different. What is it like being an American in Egypt in general? Uh, it's kind of what you make of it. I, I, I'm kind of very fortunate that I don't have blonde hair. Uh, I, I have black hair for those of you listening on the podcast. I, I am half Asian. And 
it helps me because I'm just ethnically ambiguous and that's not due to any sort of threat, but just kind of due to comfortability because I, I have some friends who are from Scandinavia that are over there. They have extraordinarily blonde hair and that's just not really a common occurrence. So there will be times where people will just stop what they're doing, just kind of stare in the sense that, Hey, I've never seen anything that looks like you before. I'm just so intrigued, but I'm ethnically ambiguous. I've actually been confused as being Egyptian a few times. I get a lot of, are you Italian? I get a lot of, are you Lebanese? So no one knows where to put me. And as a result, they don't really care too much. Uh, but as an American, I, I think it's, I mean, it's been great. I, we live in a very good area. I know that we're very, very fortunate due to the exchange rate, due to our opportunities. But we live in a really good area. We've met a lot of really great people. And there, there's a certain connection over there. Uh, I just kind of, overgeneralize a bit. There, there's an idea called WASDA, which is essentially how much is your name worth? And just by being an American, you have a lot of WASDA. You're, you're valued very, very highly. And so we're able to meet people just on the basis that, oh, you guys are foreigners. I'd love to hang out with you guys. And so we're able to meet people from that upper class of the Egyptian life, people who have attended international schools, so people who attend like the American schools, the German schools, people who studied abroad. And we're able to build a good connection. And because they've been able to experience the life in Europe, the life in the U.S., I actually hung out with uh, one of my friends. He attended UMass Amherst for a semester or two. And so it's a, it's a very, very small world, but they're all very, very welcoming. I've, I've had no trouble with anything. And to be honest, it's actually been a very, very great experience for me. So it sounds like you already have a built-in currency, which is definitely super helpful. What was your biggest culture shock moment since moving over to Egypt? Well, okay. So for me, the biggest thing that threw me off, that took the biggest adjustment, uh, sidewalks. They don't use them even though they have them. And so essentially you have these streets, you have cars parked on both sides of the streets, you have a sidewalk that's generally perfectly okay to walk on, and no one uses it. Everyone walks up and down the streets. Uh, it's just kind of how it happens for me. It took me some time to be comfortable doing that. I still find myself straying towards the sidewalk. I guess the idea is that there's, I mean, everyone uses their air conditioning, and there's a lot of drippage coming from it just due to condensation, and people don't want to get dropped on. So they, they're saying, you know what, I'm going to stay away from the sidewalk with the air conditioning and walk in the middle of the street. But for me, that I, that was probably the biggest change I've, I've had to make. And I think there's a lot of underlying feelings around that, too. Just uh, I came from New York. The sidewalks are fantastic. I'm used to having free reign, not having to worry about traffic and everything like that. But instead, I go over there. And, I mean, let's be honest. I've, like Every person who asks, how is Egypt, there's a level of apprehension there. And so there is some sort of level of like, oh, I've never experienced this. I've been trained to think that this is a, a scary place to be. And so I'm over there. I'm putting myself in an actively dangerous situation by having to walk in the street. So my head's on a swivel. It makes you overthink things. It makes you get really, really nervous. But I, I think that once you get used to it, once you understand the, like, the why they do it, I mean, for the air conditioning is also just like there's some places where – the sidewalks are more of an afterthought. They, they weren't actually supposed to be there. They were added after the fact. And you can tell that based off of the driveways. And so this was a culture that developed by never using sidewalks in the first place. So they're not going to use them. That's just not a thing that they do. And once you get used to that, 
and you, you kind of feel like everything comes together and there's a general level of acceptance. I will say that I wish I could just walk in the street in New York because <laughs> of the condensation, but no, it's really, really interesting. And that makes sense because sidewalks are this arbitrary thing that I don't even know where they originated, but it would seem a little bit weird if in Egypt they hadn't always been there that all of a sudden they would just become normalized because these things definitely take time and it makes sense. Walk in the street. Why not? Sidewalks are just an arbitrary construct anyway to keep people safer. But also if everything is safe, (laughs) then it isn't too much of a problem. So you mentioned that being an American in Egypt, you get a little bit of prestige. It's a little bit different for you. From the Egyptians that you've talked to, what do they think of Americans right now? So I think that it's important to distinguish between America and Americans. And I think that wherever you go, uh, part of being over there has allowed me to travel a lot. Everyone loves Americans. They, everyone, no matter where you are, they're like, oh, man, it's great to meet you. It's so great. You're like, thanks for coming by. We want to share our culture with you. We want you to appreciate it the same way that we appreciate it. The issue is that they disagree with a lot of America, which is the leadership, the politics. And I think that it's, it's, I mean, it's very true. We have been, as a society, groomed to naturally be adverse to most Middle Eastern cultures, people, religion, everything. And so they disagree. They're seeing that. They, they're all watching it. I'm not even just talking about uh, Middle Easterners and Egyptians right now. Uh, specifically everyone, because there's a huge expat community over there. A lot of people from Europe, some people from South America, a lot of people from Asia. They're watching the U.S. elections right now, and they are just absolutely appalled. And that is how we are being reflected on the the international stage, and that is how they're perceiving us. And so they, as people and individuals, they want us to realize as Americans that what people are saying on the grand stage on America that's all wrong. That, so that's what they want, and that's where the disagreement comes from. Have people mentioned the debate specifically? Have they talked about Trump and Carson and whoever else to you? Are these things that they have the pulse on? Oh, absolutely. So Ben Carson came out, uh, I don't even know when, but he came out essentially saying that he believed that the pyramids were used to store grain. Oh, God, and I remember so that. so everyone in Egypt got a huge laugh out of that one. I mean, the, the Department of the Interior came out and the Antiquities made a statement and was officially just saying, do I have to respond to this? And that was the statement. That was actually the statement is, do I really have to respond to this? And so they're just like, these guys are a bunch of loonies right now. They're just absolutely shocked that, that, that he was actually a front runner at some point in time. And so, yeah, so they're very, very aware. They, they tend to watch it the same way that we watch Survivor or like The Bachelor or something like that. And so they're, they're watching it for an entertainment value. I mean, it really is the same thing. It's about at the level of Survivor and The Bachelor right now. These Republican debates, just crazy. Have you heard from any Egyptians since you've been there about Obama? What do they think of him? I know that he was a major figure there during the Arab Spring. I know there's also a lot of unrest that happened in Egypt right after that. So has that shifted opinion of Obama at all from what you've seen? Yes. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, it's not a blanket support. Definitely not. Uh, I think that if you go to some other African nations, there is much more of a blanket support. But you find in Egypt, uh, there's just not not just like a full-on, yeah, we, we love him, 
and everything that he does and everything that he stands for. And I, I think that I actually went to a cab ride once and the, the taxi driver, he was talking about, oh, it's like, I love Americans, but this is the, the politics part. And he was like, you know what I really don't like? I don't like Bush and I don't like Obama. And so I, I think that just kind of sums a lot of it up, is that there are some af- aspects that they appreciate, but in reality, they just hate all of the politicking. And that's like any nation looking at an outsider group. I mean, I'm sure that we all support France. Like, we love French people for the most part, unless you dated a French person and they stabbed you in the back. But if you did, we're really sorry. But you can't, don't always agree with French policies or whatnot. Like, if you aren't part of the Socialist Party, you might not like Hollande. Or if you aren't part of the Crazy Person Party, you might not like Marie Le Pen. It, it's just how it is. Anyway, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to stay on society. You mentioned that you are half Asian, correct? Yep, half Chinese. So, as an Asian American journalist, I know that my eyes have been open to this talking to a couple of Asian American journalists. Have you experienced any type of, I don't want to say hard prejudice, but I guess soft curiosity or any type of treatment that's different from other journalists because you're Asian? Uh, I, I think that there are some things that are just implicit or just built into the system in and of itself that just make it a little more difficult. I mean, I, I talked a little bit beforehand that I look ethnically ambiguous. It makes it so I don't really come up that way. But I, I've talked with people like uh, June Lee uh, over the monster. He's a fantastic guy, fantastic writer. Yes, he but, is. Yeah, there, there, there are some things in the system that make it very, very difficult. And so just like think of it this way. When you look at who is talking about football on a national stage? Who, who is talking and covering at NFL Countdown or NFL Today? Who, who is on these television shows, the morning shows, how, whatever breakdowns there are? Who are the people that you see on a regular basis? You see men who are either white or black, and if they're black, it's normally former players. And they all have a pretty monolithic viewpoint. Yeah, and then if you look at some of the, who are a lot of the the white commentators, they're all former coaches and stuff like that. So you look at who is really running the debates on these topics in football, and it's all people who are either in football or were part of football or are still a part of football. And if you look at the demographics, there aren't Asians playing, there aren't Asians coaching, there, there aren't Asians in the front office other than San Francisco, and actually I think he just got released. Um, but I, I think that if you look at what's, what happens in football, it's a lot harder for Asians to be respected as a whole due to the fact that there is no association between the sport and the ethnicity, and I, I think that, or the, the group, and I, I think that it makes it a little more difficult just because it's something that you don't expect. It's something that you're not really considered to be an insider on. And so you have to work a harder to, to break into it and be deemed as valid. Now, and I actually don't know this, so I'd be interested to hear your answer. Since your mother is Chinese, did you travel to China or Hong Kong a lot growing up? Was that something that was a regular trip for you, or was it just sort of part of your ethnicity? Yeah, so actually, so we went once when I was seven, eight, nine, something like that. Uh, I went once, and we went and visited our ancestral village. It was amazing. But in 
the grand scheme of growing up, we were very, very involved with Boston Chinatown. And that is something that we, like, as a family, are still a huge part in. My dad's a huge supporter of it. And it, it's a really, I think it's a really important part of our culture and society is that we're able to have that built-in support network. And that, I would say that more so than any sort of travel over there has helped build the identity of being an Asian American. So when you were growing up with kids in Boston, Chinatown, I'm guessing you had friends who were also part of that community and I'm guessing you watched football with them. Were there any players that jumped out to them as role models? I know you mentioned there weren't a lot of Asian players in the NFL. I honestly can't think of too many other than like Heinz Ward, who was half Korean. Patrick and Chung, who is Patrick half Chung, as well. And uh, Haruki Nakamura, who was on the Panthers, I think, back in the day. And maybe like there was like one other officer tackle, but I honestly can't think of too many. Were there players who you and your friends automatically clung to who, or did you just cling to everyone else? Like, I guess a lot of us do when we don't have a role model in our particular community. Well, I think that's actually something that's interesting and it kind of speaks to a lot of the Asian American identity and culture and what they choose to adopt and how they choose to be represented. And if, if you look at the hip-hop culture, you'll find that Asians tend to adopt that or they drift towards that. And I know I'm being overgeneralizing right there, but it, it's true. Like, there, there are major subsects that really support that. And it's because it's a, it's a community that they feel welcomed to. It's a feeling where they, they're not isolated. And I think in that similar idea is that you, you just gravitate to wherever you feel supported. And so as a result, I think that what the good thing and the beautiful thing about sports is that you are automatically within that community. So by being a Patriots fan, you are automatically within that Patriots community. You are a supporter and everyone else who supports it feels the same way that you want your team to succeed. You want the players to succeed and you're built in with those same sorts of, of role models that everyone else has. And I think that people respect and love Tom Brady because of what he's had to overcome, what where he's grown, where he's developed. But there are also little superheroes too, like the, the Troy Browns, due to the fact that he was able to do everything and everyone just loved the fact that he would sacrifice his own personal value or whatever you want to call it for the greater good of the team. And I, I think that... That supersedes race. Those are certain aspects that are more about personhood as opposed to racial identity. And I, I think that as a person, I can't speak for everyone else, but for me, that is what I looked for in the players that I truly admired. That is so true. The community that sports is able to foster definitely is a home for a lot of people who don't have any role models who immediately jump out who look like them because that automatically does make you part of a group. It makes you part of a community and you're able to join that community where everyone's on the same playing field. So I definitely agree with that. To end this segment, getting back to Asian American journalists, do you think that the landscape is changing at all? I mean, we've seen June, you mentioned, who, by the way, follow at June Lee if you don't and you like baseball. He also has a podcast, which is great, and you should listen to that as well. Mina Kimes, amazing writer, someone else who's changing the game. Jay Caspian King has written sports in the past, although now I think he's more general from the New York Times, but he made an impact on the sports industry as well. And there are, I'm sure, other guys who I'm forgetting. Aaron Levine, who's a broadcaster for the Seahawks, does a really good job. 
I'm sure there are other ones, as I said, that I'm forgetting as well that you could probably mention. But do you think that with all this young talent that the landscape is changing at all? I do. I, I think that what is important is how access has changed. And so right now, I mean, even my whole start, June's whole start, we came out of like the blogosphere. And I think that don't want to owe everything to, to Bill Simmons, but in reality, it's the ability for people to create their own voice and to create their own identity where they themselves are the product that people look to find and to trust. And I think that we're seeing, I mean, it's definitely not as easy as if you're automatically thrust on TV five days a week to, to build a following, but we all have platforms on the open internet to allow people to read our topics where I can be literally anywhere in the world, submit my thoughts on it for people to read. And I, I think that that more than anything is why things have changed and why we're able to have more access and opportunities. It's because you no longer have to go work at, on the beat at the Boston Globe, work as the, the grunt editing things before you get an opportunity to go interview a player. I can just call, call up a player right now if they're doing like a promotional event and I can have a conversation with them. And I've never been in the, the media room at Gillette before. And I, I think that right now I, I have the opportunities like all around the country just on the fact that anyone can read my material and understand that I can have a name brand. So we can look over, I mean, people in like San Francisco can, can read my stuff where in the past you would have to read the local newspaper. And I, I think that that overall sharing of knowledge has definitely shifted how information is transmitted and how opportunities are generated. That is a perfect way to wrap up the society segment. We're going to scoot on over to stuff. You, like another past guest of ours, love Pokemon. We talked about it before. Which Pokemon is your favorite? All right, so there's a background to this one. So I'm sure you're familiar with the Nuzlocke which, for those that aren't, it's when you pick your one Pokemon, and if they faint, they're dead. You, you have to restart. If you run out, you have to release them. So you can't let any of them die. And that's it's one of the ways that the replay value for the game just goes through the roof. It makes every single game unique. And so my one of my first Nuzlocke adventures was replaying Red. Uh, I, of course, use Fire Red because it's just better graphics and easier to watch. But I went through... I wound up in Mount Moon with a Zubat, which for everyone who is familiar with Pokemon, whenever you go into a cave, you are swarmed by billions of Zubats, and you kill them all, and you hate them because they're awful. And for me, that was the first one I ran into, and that is also the rule, is that you are only allowed to catch the first Pokemon that you run into in every new zone. And so that was my Pokemon for Mount Moon, and I needed it. It was the sixth Pokemon in my team. And loved it. Absolutely loved it. I, I use Zubat for the rest of my game. It, it evolved. Golbat is one of the most underrated Pokemon out there. Uh, highly, highly loved its versatility. It could learn fly. It could use, like, dark move, psychic. It could use so many different things that it was just such a versatile sweeper. It had a good enough speed to, to function in the Elite Four. But for me, I think that having those, like that Zubat experience really... Uh, changed how I, I viewed the entire game. That is the most Bill Belichick way to play Pokemon. Of course, Bill Belichick would like use a Zubat and make that his sweeper. 
because oh, no one absolutely. uses a Zubat. And, of course, he would be like, this is a shifty Pokemon. It, underrated. 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 It does everything. It plays offense, defense, special teams, special His attack. was fantastic. Yeah. So, but as you said, I do like Nuzlocking. It is a lot of fun. If you want to look up the rules, the rules are pretty simple. As Rich said, if a Pokemon faints, it's dead. And also, you can only catch the first Pokemon at any route. I've had some fun Nuzlocke adventures. My personal favorite one was where I turned a Mr. Mime into my most powerful attacker, which I'm not sure how that happened, but it was a lot of fun. And I like Mr. Mime, even though he's kind of weird. But he can he can do cool things when he wants to. He's like, what, what did he Pokemon. know? I, I didn't know he could learn he things other than, like, psychic. Psybeam? I think that... I don't even remember. Jeez, I do not remember. But basically what ended up happening is that he knew Psybeam and then... I think I was able to teach him hypnosis and then dream eater and then something else. Yeah, no, that that's like a really powerful combo that you, if, when you play the the reds and blues, that's just such a overkill. I mean, they had to nerf those later on, but those psychic moves were just unbearably good. If you, if you had a hypnosis and you had a dream eater and a psychic or a side beam, they could sweep literally every single team they faced. Because there were no Pokemon that could really beat them, really, right? Like, there, there was no one that you could say, oh, yeah, they have bug Pokemon. They're going to do real well. Because once you pass Viridian Forest, you never see that again. Yeah, you never, ever have to deal with those Pokemon again. And normally those gyms are, like, really early in the game anyway, so you really don't have to deal with them again because no one's ever going to use bug types because bug types, by and large, are awful except for, I guess, Scyther and Pinsir. But otherwise, they're pretty mediocre. All right, same sort of idea. Go with Nuzlocke. Butterfree. Huge. 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 Putting Butterfree out there is someone that you're taught early on how evolution works. So Butterfree evolves from Caterpie, who you pretty much catch in like your first real test when you're going through the Viridian Forest. It's before your first gym. So it's the very, very beginning stage of the game. And so this is a Pokemon that evolves twice before level 10. And the idea of it is to teach people that this is how Pokemon works. Your, your Pokemon will reach a certain level, it'll change type, it'll change how it looks, it'll learn different moves, and then it'll do it again at level 10 to show, hey, something's evolved twice. And for me, that I would always be like, ah, oh, man, like Caterpie's terrible. Like, really, really bad. And so then, uh, when I would do my Nuzlocke, I would start with a Charmander, because it takes a long time to get a good fire Pokemon in that game. And uh, I would use the Caterpie, evolve it to a Butterfree, and use it to sweep the first gym, because fire does not do well against the rock and ground Pokemon with Brock. And so, with Butterfree, you just have this one Pokemon that... It's a bug slash flying, but it can learn psychic moves. And so it will learn the Psybeams and learn all, like, the gusts and the wing attacks and stuff like that. And it was just super versatile. So actually, having both the the Golbat and the Butterfree on the same team was something I never would have expected unless I did this run. And if you want to talk about super underrated Bill Belichick-type versatile Pokemon, Pidgey is awesome if you have to do a run with it. Because... Pidgey is, like, the first Pokemon you will actually encounter. It is a bird, and it involves really fairly quickly, 
into Pidgeotto and then Pidgeot, but its attack is so strong and it's so fast and it learns some really cool moves quickly. I have to say, I brought my Pidgey with me for a while and it became pretty awesome. And I think there's a flying Pokemon like that in every single game. In X and Y, there is this flying Pokemon called Fletchling that is flying fire. It is a cheat code. I swear, it is the most awesome Pokemon. Because basically, you get the special attack with the fire, and then you also have the physical attack with the flying. And, well, it's so cool. Have you played X and Y? Uh, I don't think so. I think the last one I played was Black 2. Um... But I have my DS. I play whatever I can. I generally wait for whatever to be downloadable onto the, the memory card because it's a little bit easier. But, no, I, I don't think I've played X and Y. My favorite Pokemon in X and Y, maybe ever, and I, actually I noted on Arif's podcast another Pokemon that I really liked was Skarmory because I used yep. it in the Nuzlocke. Skarmory, I just, it was flying. so fast. He's so fast, and you can just use, like, Steel Wing and Aerial Ace and, like, destroy everything. But in X and Y, there's this Pokemon called Halucha, the only flying fighting type, I believe. There might be other ones, but it's one of the only ones. But it has a move called Flying Press that only it can learn, and it's a dual flying fighting type move. Is that a thing? Like, yeah, it's are a there real dual thing. Moves now, or is that like the only dual move that exists? I don't know if there are other ones, but I used him on my Nuzlocke for Y, and he was sick. He was one of my favorites for sure. I was a big fan. He looks like a little luchador, so he's kind of adorable <laughs> too. Oh, Another example of really, really good design. I wish I had that kind of design to just like create those creatures like that. It's crazy. Anyway. You mentioned Pokemon Red. Is that your favorite generation? What's your favorite game? Um, alright. Well, I, I think that there's always some degree of nostalgia when you go back and play those original games. But for me, I want to say, I don't know, I, I always enjoyed the, the, the idea and concept of the gold-silver, where you get all 16 gems. I yeah. thought that the execution was a little lacking, because they just kind of copy and pasted uh, the, was it the Johto region? Like, so the original region? Yeah. Just, uh, tack that on there at the end, and there wasn't really too much to do other than just run through and sweep all of the, the gym leaders. But I, I loved that idea. I loved the concept of time. I loved the idea of the berries. It was the first time you could really give items to your, your Pokemon to hold. I thought that the world was just so huge. And I remember playing that, and I think that part of me will always have the, the fond memories of having little worm lights that you would just plug into your, your Game Boy Color. So you could just play them at late at night under your, your blankets. And so I, I thought that that world was first what it expanded the mind to thinking, how big can these games be? Yeah, I love Gold and Silver for sure. I agree with you that it took a little bit too long to travel everywhere, and it was kind of lazy because it just copied everything. I don't even think I beat Silver, if I recall correctly. I don't think I have ever beaten uh, Ash I'm, at the end of it either. I don't think I've ever done that. No, actually, no, I did. I did beat Silver, but I had forgotten about that until just now. I actually, and I know that a lot of people don't love this game, I personally like Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, just because I like Kyogre, I thought it was a really cool legendary, and I thought the story was kind of interesting, although maybe it's a little bit shaky at times, but I personally was a fan of it, so I definitely... That was the first one with dive and stuff like that, right? Where you go under the water and stuff? Yeah, it was pretty cool. Like, they did really, really good work, and all the conditions during battle with the sandstorms, 
I thought they did a pretty good job on that. I I think the next level for me, and this is something that I always wanted to do growing up, I would love if in the next iteration of Pokemon you didn't just have to do the same mission. Like, some people might not want to catch all the Pokemon, some people might. What if you make your main mission in Pokemon catching all the Pokemon? What if you make your main mission in Pokemon beating all the badges? What if you make your main mission in Pokemon being a gym leader? I mean, that's something that could be another challenge, too, in my opinion. I think that there's a lot of ability in the future games to have multiple options of how you want to go about things. I always personally wanted to be a gym leader, because I thought it would be badass. Like, you're this guy who can run a gym if you want to. Heck, you could run the first gym, and you could beat the game really easily if you wanted to, hypothetically. But yeah, that'd be great. You took their job as like a WWE, like winner take all sort of match. That'd be hilarious. Yeah, and then you would be the gym leader, and you might have to like do various challenges that pertain to gym leaders. I mean, all these cities have things happen. We've seen the gym leaders have to do things before. There's so many story options. I just think it would be cool. But that's maybe a little bit too outside the box for the Game Freak designers. But we'll see. Man can dream. Anything else you want to talk about? I think that we covered Pokemon pretty heavily. (laughs) Uh, We have been talking for a while now. Is there anything else you want to bring up? Uh, No, I mean, it was really cool being on this podcast. I I really like the the concept and the execution. Uh, I I listened to a couple of them before, and they've all been great. So it's, it's a real honor to be invited onto this one. Definitely. Well, you're always welcome back, Rich. Thank you so much for being on, and thank you for listening. That is all for this week's edition of the Hammer Time Podcast. Tweet me at Ethan Ham. Download this on iTunes. Leave five-star reviews. It's on SoundCloud. It's on Playmaker Mentality. Lots of stuff will be happening soon. I can't wait to share it with you. And on that note, have a great night.